and welcome to the Geek and Review Podcast. I'm Jeremy Pappas, alongside, as always, a young man who wished to gain his heart's desire, Mr. Russell Jones. Russell. And who would have thought that heart's desire was some nice, solid mead? Yes, I had mead last night for the first time since I moved down to Louisiana, and it was fantastic. That's not bad. I'm not a big fan. Mead has kind of become the the hipster wine beverage of choice. Not that that colors my my enjoyment of it, but I, uh, a good friend of mine's a real big meathead. I'm just, eh, it's all right. I would prefer just regular wine, but that's just me. What you up to, brah? Oh, you know, just breaking news left and right and doing lots of writing for video game writers and getting ready for the next next section of the D&D Next playtest, which has finally come it's out. Finally, finally, finally. Which is, I, I, I'm really glad that it's out now. The reason being... The uh, original playtest, and we kind of had this this uh, problem when we playtested it. Once you've gone through it one, or once you've really, once you've played it once or twice, you're done. There's not really anything else to playtest. You yeah. have so few actual things from the game to playtest that there are there are maybe two or three new features that you get used to pretty quickly and you form an opinion on and then you're done. So I'm, I'm glad that it is finally out. I mean, our playtest game that we had hoped to continue on as to being a normal game lasted, I think three, maybe four total, uh, yeah, four, four, maybe five sessions. And I mean, after the first one, we were pretty much just playing D and D, uh, kind of with, without as much control over character creation and things like that. So this D&D playtest numero dos comes at a very opportune time. Yeah, and it has it has the most requested feature uh, in it that players have been really wanting, which is character customization. Mm-hmm. They give you the first five levels of a handful of different classes. When they released it, um, I want to say the first day or the day before Gen Con, they included the wizard, the fighter, the rogue, and the cleric, which we had already seen, you know, to begin mm-hmm. with. So looking at that, it was like, I didn't necessarily think that there was going to be a lot to do. I mean, yeah, we could build some different types of characters, but I figured it had the potential to get a little old a little quick. They also didn't include any uh, adventure with that initial download, mm-hmm. which, you know, the first time they had that Caves of Chaos adventure which was very light on the story, but heavy on the dungeon crawly, you know, because it was an old first edition, second edition adventure. So that was that was fine. I was looking forward to potentially building something new, making something different, either by adapting an old third edition adventure path I've got lying around, you know, somehow, or figuring something else out. But then they pulled a curveball on us, and after the first night of Gen Con, they released another round of another download that included the two new classes, the Sorcerer and the Warlock, and it included an adventure written by James Wyatt and Bob Schwalb, uh, reclaiming Blinging Stone. They also made some pretty significant announcements at the uh, D&D keynote in, at Gen Con regarding D&D Next, mm-hmm. which we can get into in a bit. But the good news is there's gonna, there is now a lot more to really... You know, there's a lot more moving parts to, to work with, and... While I wanted to try something, you know, kind of custom-made from an adventure standpoint, I am still a little glad they gave us an adventure that we could try. And it's a pretty hefty adventure. Mm-hmm. I was reading through it, and it seems like it's designed to – which is, you know, smart. It's designed to take you all the way through fifth level. So it's kind of a um, – like a mini big adventure, you know. They'll do the mega adventures where you get ten levels or so out of it. Out of it. This is – this was a, a really nice thing, and if it's a – Example of adventures to come later. I'm a I'm a little impressed. Yeah, and I mean, I think that really goes to show that the people at Wizards sort of understood that the first playtest wasn't whatever the opposite of beefy is. I guess anemic. It, yeah. it was quite anemic, and there wasn't a whole lot to do. And this is them, I think, very explicitly saying, you know what, play D and D. To play test it, give us a real world play test because it was really difficult in the first iteration of the play test to give it a real world play test because mm-hmm. you you had pre made characters and you could you could kind of see how you reacted to 
and utilized and liked certain new features, but the rest of it was pretty much what we what we've been you know, what we all have experience with in virtually every iteration of D&D, and there was really nothing new there. This, it really gives you a lot of a lot of specifics. I mean, I was looking through the specialities document. I'm not really a big fan of it being split up into so many... This is, this is nitpicking. I don't really... Yeah. I, I wish they would have just all put it all in one big PDF and not split it up into 16 different PDFs, but... Or maybe yeah. a PDF and then character sheet PDF. As it is well. kind of it is kind of wonky to have to pull up like four different PDFs to figure out you know all the different aspects of your character. Right. I mean, you have equipment in its own PDF. You have the packet summary in its own PDF. Races, specialties, spells, classes. Like, why couldn't that all have been backgrounds? Why couldn't that all have been one PDF? But like, that's that's extremely nitpicking and. Not a not a major deal whatsoever, but uh, you get a lot of you get you get a lot of specific details. There's specialties, and you have a good probably four to six pages of specialties. It gives you eight to ten different specialties. You have a big list of backgrounds that you can use that are that are good for virtually any class. So you can really create new and interesting and different characters it goes into the skill set and how skills work in relation to backgrounds and and how you don't it's it's sort of similar to what we experienced before you don't really have skills you have things that you're experienced in and then if you do those things you you can do better with them um the obviously the one thing that everyone's really the most interested in is character creation and character creation, it like like you said, it gives you the that first three five levels of uh, creation. There's a there's some interesting stuff there. There's not a lot of really different interesting stuff, but there is some interesting stuff there. Right, and you get a better look at uh, some other mechanics. You know, the the cleric, the rogue, and the wizard play. I think similarly to what you saw in the initial play test, mm -hmm. the fighter got a big uh, shot in the arm mm -hmm. with the addition of their combat maneuvers, combat style, the expertise dice. Um, all that's in the play test packet, so we don't necessarily want to spend a lot of time digging into the details. Yeah. But you know, they got something that makes them feel in my opinion, a little more heroic -y. Mm -hmm. They have something that they can do besides, I'm going to melee basic attack. I'm going to melee basic attack again. <laughs> oh, I'm going to melee basic attack again. Oh, wait, again. this oh time I'm going to... Oh, oh, no, I'm just going to go ahead and melee basic attack one more time. Yeah, it's... I, I think that's another... That's a way of setting it apart from 3rd edition and saying, you know, this is... The one thing that I have, that I've really seen as I've looked through this is it is kind of a half step between 3rd edition and 4th edition. That's mm. what it really... And just that's, this is from a cursory glance. Now, both Russell and I... This just came out several-ish days ago. I have not had a chance to go over it with a fine-tooth comb. Russell yeah. hasn't really either. Which is why, which is part of the reason why we're not going to get into the real nitty gritty, down and dirty details, because frankly, there are going to be other people out there who have been able to comb over it and are going to do a much better job. From yeah. a cursory and, you know, glance, go, go download it yourself. And yeah, it. I mean that's that's also a thing you can do, just to go and and you know, uh, one thing that I will say they've really greatly improved upon. I don't I don't think they really had a choice not to, but they've really greatly improved upon actually getting. The playtest packet. Uh, yeah, you go in. The delivery system has been. Fixed. You have to sign up again, which is a little wonky, but you can sign up with the same email address you used before. And there's just a thing you click on and you download the 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 playtest documents. You don't have to get a thing and a code and enter a code and get to the thing. You sign up. You don't even have to confirm your account. I mean, it's a put your name, password, and email address in here. You say, hey, yeah, you can contact me with surveys and whatnot, and then you get the playtest mm -hmm. document. So I'm I'm a big fan of that, though, again, I don't think they really had a, a choice. That, <laughs> the, uh, the yeah. rollout for the first playtest was comically bad. <laughs> it was like, yeah. it wasn't like there were a, there was a class of people like, oh yeah, I've got it, and then there were like a very small subset of people going, okay, I'm having problems. Usually people who don't know how to work the internet. It was yeah. mostly people who couldn't get it. 
Yeah. So it was, uh, I, I think we ended up, I ended up getting it from some guy on Twitter. See, they made me go get my D&D on the streets <laughs> instead yeah. of in a nice, comfortable, safe environment. No one knows where I that D&D's if, been. Yeah. I wonder if, you know, the fact that a large number of the people that would be instantly downloading this were all packed into a convention hall <laughs> whenever they announced this might have had a little bit to do with it. But no, I think that they actually did make some... Um, some big upgrades in the delivery system. There is there is one rules aspect that I wanted to mention that I I thought was really nice. It's a very small and simple thing. Uh, I think Jeremy's going to like it as well. I don't think he's seen this or not. Mm-hmm. I was reading through the equipment guide, and I got to weapons, and I noticed that they have a new classification of weapon called finesse weapons. And when you read it, it says finesse weapons are melee weapons, that you can use either your strength modifier or your dexterity modifier to attack with. Mm-hmm. And they are, you know, your dagger, your quarterstaff, your rapier, your scimitar, you know, all those right. little things that a rogue or a bard or someone who is not necessarily, you know, in this case, a duelist fighter, that's a build that you can make now, uh, not necessarily, you know, using strength. And you don't necessarily have to sacrifice, oh, I have to take a very specific slotted-in build just to be able to use this the way that other people normally use their high Mm -hmm. stat. They also have katana listed as a finesse weapon. So you could use basically a, you know... Masterwork bastard sword. Yeah, you could use a katana as a uh, strength modifier or a dexterity modifier. Mm -hmm. I thought that was really nice, that they they flat out said, look, we know some people want to use it. You know, some other people. We're just gonna let you use. I agree. I, you I have think, proficiency in finesse. You can use. I it. think it shows their willingness to ensure that feats are things you want to pick and not things that you have to pick. You know, yeah. you ran into that with uh, third edition. Third edition was really bad about having things you had to do to be functional. I'm I'm looking right now as if you wanted to be arranged character you wanted to work with a ranged weapon you had to get a sort of a a series of two or three feats for not only not to enhance your character but to make your character just semi-decent right you know you had to get um what was it not crowd shot um you had point blank shot you had to get point blank shot you had to get uh like combat casting for uh, right that for allowed wizards. you to attack somebody without the uh, without the possibility of of hitting your buddy or taking a massive negative to your penalty. You had to get certain feats. It was there was nothing. There was no way around it. And I really yeah. like that they're getting to they're getting to a fact to a point where they say our classes work. We want you to dress the classes up and make them what you want. You're going to we're starting you at a baseline. Of uh, of a good person doing what you want to do, of a good yeah. hero doing what you want to do. You make it your own, but you're not starting off crappy and having to make yourself not crappy. You're starting off good and having to make yourself great, which I'm which I'm a fan of. I really do like that. I will say this, however, the beginning of this whole process, they talked about wanting to make things, wanting to make things easier uh, for certain individuals wanting to give you options and they the big thing that they had against fourth edition was bloat there was so much stuff and you had to do this is a pretty bloaty document (laughs) there's a lot of stuff here um there's a lot of stuff here so i i don't know if they're now trying to drown us in details if only to find out what they need to take back or if this is where they're going and they've realized that, you know what, there really is no such thing as bloat. Uh, or, or at least we haven't, we haven't seen it yet because there's a, there's, I would argue that in this, it, it, even in this playtest, there's more going on than in the first released core rule books for fourth edition, just in this playtest. Well, I think, if you if you take what we had before and you kind of pare it down to you know what makes essentially a character mm-hmm. which what they did at the beginning you're going to find that uh some of these things you know while it looks like bloat it's because you may also be adding in the back of your mind the stuff that you know you already expect to have mm-hmm. feats and skills and other things like that and that's not necessarily the case your your background kind of determines you know a lot of those skills your specialty 
or your uh, something else, you know, right. determines a lot of those feats. So it's not that they are adding a whole lot on. They're taking the existing stuff, like the feats or the skills, and they're fluffing it a bit, let's say. Fluff. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I don't necessarily think they're at bloat. I mean, if they start adding three other additional things, then I'm like, whoa, 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 let's, let's, ba- let's yeah, dial I mean, it back here. I'm just saying that but, they're, not, they're not below where 4th edition was, in my humble opinion. They're not right. under where 4th edition was. In fact, I think they're a little – I think it's a little more to digest than 4th edition was. I mean, at least 4th edition, you sort of had a – you sort of had a a path that was understandable and that had a little bit of logic to it. Now, not that this isn't logical, and I I like what we have here, don't get me wrong. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, their stated goal was we want to make this... We want to make this simpler, we want to make it a little more streamlined, we want to give you more choices but not overwhelm you with bloat. And I feel like they've not necessarily made it simpler... Uh, at least not from character creation. I'm sure as you continue on, it makes it easier for you to level up because you're essentially putting your character, in many cases, on rails. I've, I'm getting this at this level, this at this level, this at this level. But at the same time, it's still a lot going on. But again, it it still follows what they also said with the modular aspects. You know, remember on that very first character sheet underneath background and specialty or background and theme in that case they changed theme to specialty this time around you it said underneath that if you want a more old school game ignore these Mm -hmm. do not use these Mm -hmm. so it could be that to start with players you know who are brand new to D&D and don't necessarily need a whole hundred different options maybe they don't use backgrounds and specialties they just use the core class and they play the core class for a while and then that, you know, leaves you with attack. If you have spells, you have spells and a handful of class features. And that's all. Yeah. You know, I your mean, backgrounds and your your backgrounds, your specialties, you take you can those leave away. Out, and yeah. you, have, you have a pretty core class. You don't necessarily have to have them. You can get them and it will specialize your class a bit more. It will give you some additional things. But, you know, they've said we want to make this so that you play the way you want to play. And and they reiterated that during the D&D keynote. Mike Morales was saying, you know, we if you if you use a whole lot of rules and the rules get in the way, that is the designer, you know, kind of making it their game and getting in the way. You you kind of have to work around that. But that's not what we want. We want the players to come to this and do what they want to with it. We want to present you with core rules and we want to then get out of the way. And you can do you know what you want to with it. You pick up these two things and you use them all the time. That's great. You want to use everything all at once. Go for it. You don't want to use it all and you think it's too bloated. You just use the stripped down you know basic class information. You can do that too. And just from what I've read so far, they're they're sticking to that. Yes, you get some extra abilities if you want to be a priest and a healer, but that's if you want to choose the background and specialty. You don't have to have those at least at this point that we've seen, to be effective and to keep up with everyone. See, that I think is what my my central concern is going to be. I, I will say this. I understand saying that you can leave out what you don't want. I mean, but to be fair, you could do that with almost every iteration of D&D. You could do that with 3rd edition. If you don't want to deal with feats, you could just leave out feats. If you, I mean... Because well, you have a baseline. My, I think the issue you might that, that we might sort of see is an issue of balance. And I think balance has always I, been something that or that oftentimes Wizards struggles with when constructing editions of D and D. And you're going to have, as they talked about to begin with, you're going to have the, all the different people sitting around the table, and you're going to have your first edition style fighter and your your statted out priest and your statted out priest is a lot more effective than your first edition fighter. Yeah, but let's remember what we just said a minute ago. You know, in other editions we had problems where you had to have certain feats to be effective right. to keep up. And not even, you know, like, you know, your combat casting, basic mechanic feats, pow- weapon specialization, right. weapon expertise, 
all these different things that added one to your defenses, added one to mm -hmm. your attacks, just so that you could stay in the arms race. So you had to have feats. Right, but what I'm saying is I'm, I, I'm concerned that that aspect is going to be transferred over to people who are using look at it this way if you're at a if you're at a table with people and they're all playing with whatever sections of the characters they or with the sections of the game that they want to play with and you have someone playing a first edition game that or you have someone playing a first edition character that sh that doesn't include specialties or themes and then you have other people playing with specialties and themes the people that are playing with specialties and themes are creating the baseline they're creating the the where the characters should be at it's kind of like the old you're only as strong as the weakest link in the chain adage, but mm. in reverse. You're as strong, you know, you should be as strong as the most powerful, as the strongest link in the chain. So you're creating your baseline of people that are using all these extra features and able to do all this different stuff. And you're leaving the other you're leaving other folks behind who have decided they don't want to use those. I would also like to say, and maybe, you know, they're. This is entirely speculation on my part, but it's, it's my podcast, so I can do that. Yeah. Um, I don't see that many people. I, I don't see that many people saying I'm not going to use what's given to me because I want a more quote unquote old old school feel uh, game. Your old school gamers have their game. They're going to play that game. Why would you think that someone would buy something new to recreate the experience of something that they're already doing? So I think this whole, oh, people who don't want to play with these this section of rules, they can just leave that out if they don't like it, if they want to have a more old school feel, is kind of stupid. Mm. Because the people who want that more old school feel are are by and large playing the more old school games. I mean, I I can kind of understand the attractiveness. I here's I guess here's my overall point about the whole thing. I could mm -hmm. understand the overall attractiveness of having a game system that would allow people to play with different we'll call them historically almost like historical time period characters. I'm playing my first edition, you know, thief. While I'm playing my fourth edition, ro uh, you know, mm. uh, acrobat rogue. I can understand the allure of a system like that, assuming that balance is equalized between the the different styles of play, we'll call it. Assuming mm. that your first edition fighter you have in some in some way equalized to your fourth edition, you know, dual weapon guardian kind of fighter. You you, mm -hmm. you get a, you get what I mean. I mean, mm -hmm. allowing people to buy this game and then strip away part of it to play an old school type game, and I'm making air quotes every time I say old school. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think is gonna attract. I don't think there are people who want to do that. I, I genuinely don't think there are people who want to buy a new edition of D&D to play an old edition of D&D. Well, one of the other announcements that Wizards made actually goes along with that because they said, hey, the whole back catalog, every edition, first edition, second edition, mm -hmm. third edition, everything that we have, it's all going to be available digitally. We're going to start selling it and make it available in digital Which format. Which, so, is freaking awesome. Yeah. I, I That is... That to me is the biggest news out of out of Gen Con about D and D, bar none. That is a step that I think D and D should have been doing five years ago. When yeah. Kindle first came on the scene, when when e-readers first came on the scene, when hell when people were passing files around initially, and you still didn't really have a dedicated device. That sort of weird, you know. Uh, pre-tablet, post-laptop, yeah. quagmire. I yeah. think that's where D and D should should have started selling them. I'm I I think it's stupid for D and D not to sell things that way. The reason being is D and D is such a specialized 
school of thought. It's such a specialized mm-hmm. thing. It's hard for lots of people to get it. It's hard for lots of people to to just go down the street and buy a D&D book. I mean, there are places and I well, I don't really live in one now. Where I we've talked about this before. Where I live there's not really a good game shop. Though I actually yes. found out last night that a new game shop just opened. Um not too long ago and uh, a friend of mine came over last night we were talking and she said that uh, they went in there and uh, there were people in the back playing D&D and it's like a comic shop and I'm like whoa whoa whoa, whoa what when yeah. how did this what that goes to show how completely out of the loop I've been these last couple of weeks uh, just yeah, where busy is with what it's what well, okay if you don't live in Fort Smith you're not going to understand what I'm about to say so you can turn off the yeah. guys for 20 seconds it's right next to Pink Flamingo like literally right next to Pink Flamingo Holy crap, yeah, no. Like, right there. That's... Apparently, there's, like, a big Hulk in the window and everything. That's fracking awesome. I, 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 I know. We, we've talked about... We've talked about... I live in Fort Smith, Arkansas. And for years and years, there's really been... Well, there was a little... There was a little dingy comic shop called Time Machine. But it was always... It's yeah. the kind of place that you think if you go in the door, you're probably going to leave there, like, yep. raped. To be honest. It's just skeezy looking. It's in a really shady part of town. And it it's really skeezy looking. But there was another comic shop... That has been around for a long time, and the guy, the guy that owns it, just doesn't do a very good job. It's very, it's all over the place. There's magic cards, and there's comics, and there are some D and D books, but there's not a whole lot. And it's, mm-hmm. it's just there hasn't been a good comic game type shop here for as long as I've been here. And what we're getting now is this other. I haven't been there yet. I actually may try and stop by sometime today. I haven't been yet. But I'm I'm interested to see now that we have this new comic shop. So anyway, we're gonna stop talking about local comic shops that none of you care about. Uh, now, so there's now there's this place. But D and D to rewrite my train. D and D has oh, reminded me to tell you the thing I watched about the trains the other uh, before we get finished with the podcast. <laughs> I'm derailing myself later on uh, down the line. Um, D&D is such a specialized interest that you can't go to your corner bookstore and buy D&D books. Uh, you mm. can't go and get, especially when you're talking about old edition of d Now, sure, if you want to buy whatever edition is current, you can probably find them at a Barnes & Noble at a you know ridiculously overborn cost. But as far as finding second edition and, and third edition books and all those, they just don't exist. Which is why I think D&D should have jumped on digital publishing like uh, a chihuahua on a T-bone, just taking that and said, we got all this stuff that people want, and the only problem we've had so far has been a delivery system. Hello, awesome delivery system tailor-made for what we're trying to do. And the fact that they're just now doing it, I think is A, insane that they've waited this long, and B, it's a massive exhalation from a a group of people who are now like, finally, I can buy that, you know, I can buy that book that I had when I was 13 and I don't have to yeah. go on Amazon and spend $60 for it from the guy who has the only copy in existence. Yep. So I and think it's awesome. An interesting, an interesting and important note is that they did not say format. So most people, you know, automatically assume PDFs, mm-hmm. but that's not necessarily what they could do. They might sell it through Kindle, you know, through Amazon. They might be working out a publishing deal of some sort. Who knows? If I had to guess, but, they will probably it will probably be multi-platform. You'll probably yeah. be able to get it on your Kindle. They'll probably have yeah, yeah they'll. Wizards will put it out there the same way any other book publishing company book publishing puts it out there. I can't imagine yeah. them being well. I can't. I never. I should never say I can't imagine anything that anybody does in this industry. Um, but I, I can't imagine them going with one device over another or saying we're only going to release it in PDFs and you can't get. I mean, this is it's it's 2012. Yeah. People expect a certain amount of ease of acquisition. And the more you try and, and pull that back, the more damage it does to you. I mean, mm-hmm. NBC and the Olympics, they got oh, raked over the coals because yep. people expect a certain ease of acquisition. It's 2012. If you're trying to keep people from getting your product, if you're trying to keep people from – if you're trying to restrict people 
to only getting your product through one means, there's going to be backlash. And you're, and in my opinion, you're not doing the right thing, says the guy who literally probably an hour ago signed up for Netflix. Yeah. But, but I say that to say that I can't imagine them doing them, them trying to do that, having like a, you can go to the wizard store and buy it as a PDF and then load it onto your whatever. No, I'm hoping that I'll be able to get on my Kindle fire and look it up and buy it in, like straight away. And it'll probably be expensive, but you know what? I'll probably buy it anyway. But it might, who knows? They might be able to actually reduce the price, you know, so it's not the, cause this has been a barrier for me, you know, moving into, you know, more tighter budgets, F- going to the store and seeing a $40 hardback, then going to Amazon and buying it for twenty five dollars mm. has just become habit for mm-hmm. books that I need to buy. But even then, I'm still resisting and not necessarily buying that twenty five dollar book from Amazon mm-hmm. at this point. Buying a fifteen or twenty dollar PDF that becomes much more accessible. That becomes you know potentially you see a lot more mm-hmm. um, you see a lot more sales. If if they do go the PDF route, it also really hooks them into. Something that the RPG industry has been doing, you know, the outside of Wizards of the Coast, the RPG industry has been doing this for a little bit Oh, now, yeah, they have. They've been doing it pretty darn well. Oh, yeah, they have. I would say better than practically anyone else. I mean, it's – there are no – there are so few, if any, other hobbies that require books. They require reading material. Yep. Tabletop RPGs require reading material. They require you to have certain information – in a certain format. I mean, there. I maybe you can come up with a really obvious one that I'm just completely missing. But I can't think of any. I mean, you're even trivia games. You can play trivia on your fucking TV. You can't. You can't create a D and D character based on stuff entirely on your TV because they call that a video game. Yeah. Tabletop RPGs require reading material. And you know, there's also that uh, that image of you know a guy with three or four books piled around him, leaping through, referencing, looking for different things to kind of put the whole thing together. That is one of the things that I like about this hobby. It is also you know it makes it cool to be smart. It makes it cool to to know a lot of different rules and have a lot of knowledge about this thing, and you know also have that kind of library to reference and. You know, kind of like a wizard going up and researching spells and things. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that is an intrinsic part of the game that for me is fun. I like sitting down with a uh, a lexicon and figuring out you know all sorts of different things that I can add to the game. Looking up a bestiary, uh, uh, going through campaign settings and deciding what to pick and what not to use. You know, it it, it hits a lot of different buttons and it's it's having that you know. I don't think it it needs to be tied to the physical books anymore. I mean, to a point it still is, but being able to have it digitally just gives you more options, not less. And, you know, more revenue, not less revenue. Mm-hmm. And I don't see why resisting helps you at all. So making the decision and putting it out there is something that, you know, it's high time that they should have done it. Now I just have to sit back and wait and see if they do it as well as they released their first playtest or as well as they released the second playtest. Right, which was night and day. So um, Wizards does seem to be a company that has to get things wrong before they get things right. Yeah. So, you know, but I, I will stand by that the biggest thing that we learned at Gen Con 2012 was D&D past editions being digitally released. I'm, I will stick by that as knee, as far as, as far as humanly possible. And some people were really hopeful based on, uh, what early material of Gen Con's keynote address, you know, was going to be. Uh-huh. They were really hopeful that they were going to come out and make some other kind of big announcement. Like it's going to be Greyhawk all the time in D&D next, or, you know, we're going into Ravenloft or something along that nature. And they didn't necessarily say that they did say, um, we, we are going to stick to one campaign setting and really focus on that campaign, campaign setting hardcore, mm-hmm. uh, to start with. And, they chose, in my opinion, the most logical choice with the Forgotten Realms. Mm-hmm. It is it has the most support for it in terms of literature, in terms of people, in terms of, you know, sheer 
wattage and money. I mean, Dritz DeWarden and, and um, R.A. Salvatore, you know, make bank for mm-hmm. Wizards of the Coast. So having, you know, choosing that setting to really focus on to begin with, I think was a no-brainer. Uh, they're going to do an event, The Sundering, to lead into it. It's going to have uh, novels that they talked about uh, at the keynote address. But they also had said that this was, you know, going to be like the last major thing like this, which I'll believe, you know, when they actually don't do it. Um, but focusing on Forgotten Realms was not necessarily that big of a deal. Making the announcement that they were going to the digital back, you know, back uh, right. backlog. Was. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Uh, other really interesting things came out of Gen Con, specifically the awards, uh, the um, any award winners were all yep. announced. There's some really interesting things on here that I will admit I had not, uh, that had kind of slipped by me uh, over the years, or over the last year. Um, I had honestly never heard of the blog that won Best Blog. Yeah. Gnome Stew. I... Yeah, I'd heard of them. I think they were. I think they may have won last year. Well, so I, I had kind of checked them out initially, but uh, I haven't been checking it out as as often. Uh, yeah. uh, the gaming is women blog. I'd also uh, had, had heard about, but haven't had time to really check out mm-hmm. either. Um, there's obviously a lot of Paizo love, yep. which doesn't doesn't surprise me. We talked a little bit before we jumped on the uh, jumped on the podcast. Um, about the Marvel heroic role-playing basic game that got silver in best game and silver in product of the year behind Paizo uh, both times. And gold for best rules. And gold for best rules, right. So that – and you did a little bit of research uh, into the yeah. game itself. Yeah, a little bit. And you can actually pick this up on uh, Drive Through RPG. Uh, dot com right now for 10 bucks as a pdf so you know there it's a really good time if you're interested to see what it's like uh to go grab a copy of it but it sounds from from with the reviews that i've read of it and the description i've read uh it uses what's called the cortex system mm-hmm. which is based off of dice pools uh i believe that you kind of bid dice you have the the game master who's called the watcher hmm. yeah from a marvel thing i was i'm, I'm kind of so I'm still trying to figure that one out. But um, so the Watcher has, you know, the pool of dice that they build and the players have the pool of dice that they build based off their characters, plot points, other things that are going on. So the, the way it's been described is that you, you kind of have a storytelling aspect of the game. But then there's also um, the heavy use of, you know, the dice pool and the dice mechanics mm-hmm. once you get actual action going and slamming the two together may not necessarily work for some people, but for others it do. Like, some people may choose to focus more on the storytelling, others may choose to spend more time focusing on the dice. So, you know, those are the two elements at play. Um, You can also do things like breaking up the party or causing people to team up. There's more of a, uh, you know, it's not necessarily like D&D, you know, never split the party. Mm -hmm. In this case, you can potentially get some, some use out of that. Like uh, an example that I read somewhere said, you know, Wolverine is attacking the uh, the villain and player or the, the watcher spins a dice out of their pool and they crash through the floor into a hidden section of the complex, separating them from the rest of the party. Wolverine, because that's the kind of character he is, loves this and just goes to town. Right. So, you know, in some cases that might be good. In some cases you might have a team up where, you know, a group of NPCs shows up and you potentially combine forces. Um if you're into superhero role-playing games, uh, this is certainly worth checking out. Uh, I would, I'm would, i thinking about potentially seeing if there's like a free supplement somewhere or a free Just test. Just to kind of check can... out what's, what's what. Yeah, they, they, people did say from the reviews I read, there's a lot of moving parts that have to be learned. So it's not something that you can pick up and play quickly like a D20 game. Mm-hmm. It is not a D20 game at all. So uh, keep that in mind. You know, If you want to try this, I personally would not spend money on this unless I had a group of players who had said, we really, really want to play a superhero game. Mm-hmm. What do you recommend? And I'd go out and try this out and said, let's give this a shot. So some people, you know, if you really want to get your superhero on, there's this. Uh, there are other games out there, but this is kind of the new kid on the block, and it's making a, making a splash. 
they actually just released, I think recently, the Civil War uh, event guide for it. So you can – it was apparently a pretty big honkin' book, and you can play through the events of the Civil War with your uh, superhero group. They could be pro-registration, anti-registration, you know. So that that kind of intrigues me that you could potentially see these larger – you know, continuity events make their way to the tabletop for, for, for a role-playing perspective. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It really, it caught my eye if only based on what it won, uh, at the end. So I don't know. I might, I might pick it up and see, uh, what all the, what all the fuss is about. Um, specifically if I can come up with, I will say this, something that I've been, uh, that I've been wanting to write for years, one best silver and best aider accessory masks, 1000 memorable NPCs for any RPG. I've always said, just give me a book of NPCs yeah. and uh, I could just go in there gold and best aider accessory. Right. Yeah. I could just go in there and pull it out and call it good. So, uh, switching gears, uh, just a bit, actually quite a bit. Gen Con sort of dominated what we were interested in then this week. However, a little bit of news sort of slipped through the cracks. And that was that uh, Adobe, the Adobe Corporation, has killed Flash for all Android products. Meaning that with very few exceptions, as far as tablets and phones are concerned, Flash is a no-go. To me, this is pretty much the, I'll call it the, the shot that mortally wounded Flash. Because... Yeah, and I'm still, I'm still trying to understand why. Well, there are reasons. Steve Jobs, first of all, hated Flash. Whatever you mm. think about Steve Jobs, he hated Flash. He said that it was clunky, it had bugs, it really, it just really destroys battery time which i find to be completely ironic coming from the man who made the ipod the uh the uh <laughs> iphone um who in some iterations of the battery time has not been stellar mm. um it, it's clunky and it's not it's not really great for mobile uh but adobe android was kind of holding on and now uh they have finally let go i believe windows phones will still have uh flash but you know it's 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 pretty much gone i mean flash isn't great uh there are people who say that it's popular to say that flash is an abomination and it is but at the same time it's it's the standard abomination <laughs> <laughs> it's the abomination that we know and that we are really, really familiar with and use. So it's it's interesting. I mean, there are there is a subset of people that hold Flash in the mainstream, and those are people who play Facebook games. On their brand new, uh, on their brand new Windows computer featuring the latest edition of Internet Explorer, um, it's it's those people that keeps Flash together, and that's a not insignificant. No, no, it's not. I mean that they would have to be not insignificant to keep you know to keep mm -hmm. Flash going, but I think with this and with all of those people moving further and further away from desktops and onto tablets, they're going to be forced to not really buy into Flash, and then eventually Flash is going to go the way of uh, Real Player. You remember Real Player? Oof. Yes, I do. Um, it's going gonna, it's, it's gonna to go that way. So, which, it's honestly, Flash is old. It is clunky. And this is me agreeing with Steve Jobs. It's old. It is clunky. It does just completely kill your battery life. Um... Apparently, it's been used uh, repeatedly in the past eighteen months to uh, to allow hackers in for, yep. through security vulnerabilities. Yep. I'm reading a Guardian UK article mm -hmm. that mentions some various things. It also says Microsoft has said the default browser for Windows 8 will not have Flash by default. Hmm. Well, I guess Microsoft is jumping off the train then uh, as well. So we uh, we will see. Um, this is not the first time that Mac has killed um, a piece of technology that everybody loves. 
back in the late 1990s, they decide um, it was decided that um, the iMac would not have a floppy drive. And people back then, as you'll see some people now, that say, oh, it's, you know, this is, this, this is going to fall, this is going to fall on its face and this is terrible and no one will ever do it. And now you, now they make USB floppy drives because so few computers come with them. Yeah. If any, any, almost, I I mean, any actually do come with them. I know you can still buy the USB floppy drive, but I don't believe in computers anymore. And that was, what was that? 14 years ago mm. to go from people saying that it's going to completely tank the product to people saying, Oh, we don't know what a floppy disk is anymore. So, you know, it's, it's, it's not really a sad thing. I, I, I hate to talk about the death of something and not at least be slightly nostalgic, but it's old mm. technology. It goes by the wayside. Yep. So, um, but that it's, Flash has been such a big part of the internet. I'm surprised that more people haven't taken notice, but but maybe that's kind of indicative of of what we're going through here that people haven't noticed because you know they are so in the camp of tablets and phones that they just don't care. Yeah, and what... many have had to learn to do without for a while yeah. now. Yeah, before uh, I said, remind me about the train thing. We don't have a whole lot more time, but uh, this is completely. This is completely unrelated to anything we've talked about. Um, mm-hmm. I was searching around LiveLeak the other day, and on LiveLeak, on LiveLeak, I found a video, and uh, the video is a World War II training video, military training video, on how to derail a train. Wow. First of all, it's awesome. Uh, it's like ten minutes, <laughs> and it is the it is it is so. I will. There's a lot. There's a lot about it that that it, that's great. Um, <clears throat> the one thing that I, being a video guy, appreciated the most is that you could tell that when it came out, the ability to turn to to run film backward had just sort of been discovered, and they're really touting how awesome it is. Um, just by the way the, the narrator says stuff, <laughs> and he'll say, uh, oh, well, we don't need to even see that anymore. And then it'll kind of, it'll slow and it'll go backward, and then no one really says anything, because it's, I can imagine a group of people in 1944 going, oh my god, it's going backward! Um, just, <laughs> to me, that was that was kind of cute. I like to see that. But there's a lot of things you learn about how to derail a train. Um... First of all, you, one thing that doesn't work that you would think would work, uh, removing several feet of track. Not so much. Hmm. <laughs> I think at one point they removed like 60 inches of track f- parallel on both sides of the rail, and it does not derail the train. Is that just because of the length of the cars? It keeps it going? Or? Uh, it's because of the speed and the fact that the... I mean, it's set on a it's set on a straight path. Yeah. So when when your train is moving forward, the the actual engine sure it goes off of the rails, but once it hits the other rails, it just picks right back up. Right. Because of the you know because of the way trains work. Now they did come up with one thing they found extremely difficult was actually on a straightaway. Now mind you, this is not on a curve. On a curve, you can you can do this much easier. Uh, objects yeah. in motion tend to stay in motion until active upon an outside force. An object moving straight, if you do it on a curve, it's going to hit the curve, and without having the rails to actually turn it, it's going to move forward. It's going to leap the track, and you're and you're finished. Uh, right. Bingo, bango. But with uh, as far as just removing track, it doesn't actually derail the train. And they found that it was extremely difficult to get the actual engine to derail. They could derail. They they did have some success. De, uh, removing staggered lengths of track, they would release. They would remove like thirty, uh, like sixty feet here, and then halfway through, remove thirty feet here, and that would cause the that would cause the cars as they're falling off the end of the rails to shift enough that you would kind of get a wave, which would eventually pull the cars off of the the cars past the the engine would eventually right. pull them off the rails. 
That's interesting. Um, but yeah, it, it was really, really interesting that, first of all, in the 40s, there were guys that got paid to try and de- derail a train, which is <laughs> awesome. Um, second, that it's kind of difficult to derail a train. You would, and, and I would also like to mention that if you ever wanted to go down to the railroad track and smash a penny, and your mom said that you might derail the train, you can call her today and go, you liar! <laughs> I could have chopped out part of the track and the train wouldn't have derailed. So... That it was uh, it was interesting, but their their basic premise was we're gonna take this amount of C4. It was it was kind of it was almost like watching MythBusters from 1944. We're gonna take which sounds awesome by yeah, it does. It really does. They wanted to use as as small an amount of explosive uh, as possible to actually derail the train because they're like, well, sure, if you're gonna carry a hundred pounds of explosives with you, you can derail the train. That's not yeah, that's not difficult. You that's not you blow it up and then there's nothing. I mean, there's a big hole there and the train hits the hole and it's and it's off. But if you want to do it with just some you know sections of of track, um, actually removing railroad ties. Um, doesn't doesn't hurt you either, and obviously doing it on a curve is also uh, is also pretty pretty easy to derail a train. But it's it's interesting. I'll link it in the podcast page. You'll uh, take the take the ten minutes that it takes to watch it and uh, chuckle at their marveling over rolling film backward. And uh, it's it's good. It's like 1940s MythBusters, which I found to be sells it right. There. Yeah, it does. Um, as always. Our music is op prop featuring Esset. You can check them out on uhort.no. Follow us on Twitter. We are at GIR Podcast. Also, you can shoot us some email. GIR Podcast at gmail.com. GIR Podcast at gmail.com. Uh, thanks for listening. Trains, how do they can work? <laughs>